uh, and serves in our church. He is a godly young man, a gifted young man. He's a student at Gordon-Conwell, just finishing up. And, uh, and I'm excited uh, for him to bring the Word of God. I, I believe Chris brings gifts and skills in, um, in preparing the Word, but I also believe he brings a life, a life that exemplifies, uh, in part, in a great, in a great way, uh, what he's going to be preaching on. He is a man uh, who loves God, has a heart for God, understands the grace of God, the goodness of God in, in the gospel. And, uh, and for those of you who know Chris as well, you know he uh, has a love for people. He understands the connection between those two and seeks to live it out by grace. So um, I feel confident in having Chris bring us the word this morning. I'm very excited as well. Uh, so let's pray for him and ask the Lord to bless this time. Lord, we just thank you for our dear friend and our brother. Thank you for all the work that he's put in and your gifts to him. Lord, we pray you'd use him in the preaching of your word. We pray, Lord, would you give him joy before you, that his first thought would be of you and your goodness and just uh, speaking before you and give him love for your people as well and anoint him to bring your word that we might hear from you, the living God, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. It's a pleasure to be here uh, this morning and to be able to preach from such a wonderful passage of Scripture. Uh, we've had the chance, uh, for those of you who are visiting for the first time or have just been here um, a, a couple times recently, to go through the book of First Peter. And First Peter is an amazing book, and I think we would do well to remind ourselves of the context of where we've been in order to understand uh, the, the principles that we're going to talk about today. First Peter is, is a book that, that continues to uh, shape people who are in lots of different circumstances. And so we've spoken of some of those circumstances like persecution and very particular environments in which uh, Peter, that, that Peter addresses. So we started at the beginning of First Peter and we remember that, that it's written to a group of Christians who are called elect exiles. They're people who are, are scattered all over um, and Peter is addressing them. He's addressing them as people who are also who have endured persecution. We remember at the beginning that Peter says um, that he's providing a, a foundation for all the things that come later, and so the book eventually gets into, and as we will in coming months, we'll we'll, we'll get into very particular situations that Peter talks about. He talks about submission to authority. He talks about households, and he talks about very concrete. Realities, And in many ways, the, the first chapter, what we've been dealing with, is a chapter that lays a foundation for those particular environments. And so as we consider a very particular command today, namely the command to love one another earnestly, we're to understand that this whole chapter we've been going through is to set a foundation for that understanding. And without that foundation, the command to love one another doesn't make sense. In fact, it's not actually possible. We remember that at the very beginning of First Peter, um, that he's writing to these Christians and that he, he references them as people who are sprinkled with the blood of Christ. It's another way of saying that, that these are Christians he's writing to. Verses 3 and 4, moreover, of First Peter reads that, According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading. We remember that this concept of the imperishable inheritance that we have is to give us hope in light of hard circumstances now. 
And so remember that Jeff Havisto shared many weeks ago of the hope that is offered eternally and how that can affect our own response to suffering. And remember that, that many people in this congregation are going through times of suffering and have had amazing witness to us and to the world of what it looks like to live as people who have an ultimate hope. We're thankful for that hope. And I thank you for the witness that you have to me and to the world on account of living out what Peter is talking about here. We remember um, that Peter calls us, after going through this this sense of, of perseverance amidst suffering, he calls us to be holy as God is holy. We've seen this, this weighty call and this command that says God is perfect and He desires for us to be perfect. And we've seen how Christ fulfills that perfection on our behalf. And with that, that understanding in mind um, that Christians are to be a people who are characterized by faith in God and hope in God, we come to our passage today, which is 1 Peter 1, verses 22 and 23. In 1 Peter 1, Verses 22 and 23. And it reads, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding Word of God. At the very center of this passage is a command to do something that we hear a lot about. We're told to love one another. Love is a word that is extremely prevalent in our own language and it's all around us. And so you're hard-pressed to listen to a song and to not hear something about love. I I love Spanish music and, and pretty much every Spanish song that you hear has the word corazón, heart, in it. It's all talking about heart and love. And the same thing is is true of many of our songs. We talk about love everywhere. Uh, the same thing is true in movies. We speak of, of romantic movies and this notion that, that love is very present um, uh, and, and it's something that's determined by feelings. And so we look, look at love as something that is essentially a response to feelings. Um, th- this past week, I, I, I do use Facebook and for those of you who know what that is, you can sometimes see basically what other people are thinking. And they'll post online. And I'm thinking about this, this, and this. And I I saw where like a dozen people had written about this show on TV that I had never seen. It was called The Bachelor. Huh, Bachelor. And people were angry at the show, The Bachelor, what happens. I, I, didn't, I didn't know what the deal was. And what people were angry about was that this guy, uh, who, who thought of himself as very sincere, had been engaged to this one girl, and then had decided, he said, I, I'm in love with her, and yet, you know, I, I don't have feelings for her anymore. So I, I'm, I'm in love with this girl now. And so he left. And people were angry at that. And so this notion of love for, the, for this guy, the bachelor, was that, you know, it's, I, I'm almost a victim of my feelings. I have to sit around and I have to wait for this, this feeling to come over me so that I can actually love someone effectively. And what I want to submit to you today is that the love that we're going to speak about, this Christian love, and this command to love one another earnestly, fervently, relentlessly, unremittingly, is a command that is very different from the notion of love that our culture has. It's a command that has, has a deep foundation. We learn, in fact, that the foundation for this 
is, is founded in the new birth. I often use love in a fickle way, but this is not the, the kind of love that is fickle. I, I've said to Kendra in consecutive sentences, Kendra, I love you, and then the next sentence I talk about how I love bacon. <laughs> I use the word as if it, it has no meaning, it doesn't really matter, or it has a lot of meaning. This love that Peter speaks of has meaning. And there are two essential foundations that he lays out for what we see. Uh, the, the first foundation is simply found at the beginning of verse 22. It says, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. We're, we're to think of this as a, as a first pillar for understanding how we are to love one another. What is our foundation for loving one another? first foundation is that we have purified our souls by obedience to the truth. And we'll talk about what that means. The second foundation we find is just after the command. It says, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. And then beginning in verse 23, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding Word of God. Peter assumes that the reader is already in a state of having a purified soul. And this first foundation, this first pillar for understanding how we are to love one another is, is, can seem a little abstract to us. Purified your souls. Uh, we don't really speak like that. Uh, our, our notion of purity, there's notions of purity throughout the Bible. Uh, there are priests who consecrate themselves and the people of God will consecrate themselves um, and, and uh, make themselves pure to come before God. And it seems all very, very distant to us. But this purity that Peter is speaking about here is, is a deep purity. It's, it's a soul purity. It's something that goes beyond just cleanliness. How do you purify your soul by obedience to the truth? I want to submit to you that what this means to purify your soul by obedience to the truth is that it means to have faith in the Gospel. That the truth that Peter has laid out so far in chapter 1 is the Gospel. And that our obedience to it is to have faith in the Gospel. Again, we, we can sometimes be so familiar with language that we can fail to really think about what it means. And so I want for us to take a moment and, and to step back and to ask ourselves, what is this good news? What is this Gospel? If we're going to love one another, and the foundation for loving one another is the good news and our belief in it, what is it? The Bible, from beginning to end, tells a coherent story of how people were in communion with God. They broke that communion. And God entered into humanity to meet us, to restore that relationship. It's a story that's familiar to many of us, but as Adam and Eve were created by God, God and Adam and Eve had communion with one another. There was perfect harmony and perfect relationship. Fullness of joy, fullness of life. And there was one command that they were not, that they, they were not to do something. They were not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And they did. And their eating of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil was representative of, of mutiny against God. Rebellion against God. As we, we see that Adam and Eve then had a broken relationship with God, that sin had entered the world, and that there are lots of effects of that sin. Not only effects interpersonally, as we see with Adam and Eve, but effect, the effect of death being a present reality. 
That's one of the reasons that, that Jesus is, when he raises Lazarus, he expresses a frustration at death because death is not how it's supposed to be. That there's a sense in which we are rightly frustrated at the presence of death because we're created for immortality. We're created for something more. And yet, we see that sin is a present reality. We're participants in it. We're victims of it. And we know that sin is present. And yet, God has made Himself flesh in the person of Jesus to meet us, to meet our needs and to restore our relationship with Him. We don't only see in Jesus that He is a perfect example of how to love one another, but we also see that He gave of Himself on the cross so that the sin that we deserve for all those who would put faith in Christ, He took. The punishment that we deserve he took on the cross. And not only that, but three days later, He rose from the grave and had victory over death in such a way that we are to understand that death no longer has reign over those who would put their faith in Christ. That is the Gospel. That is the truth. And that is the thing to which Peter is calling us to understand and is assuming that his readers understand here. They're assuming that his readers understand and obedience to the truth means they have believed in the Gospel, that Christ has had victory over sin and death, and that we, as followers of Him, can share in that victory. It's an amazing truth. And that is the first foundation that Peter sets out. It's believing in the Gospel. And that is our foundation for loving one another. The second pillar or foundation that Peter talks about is that we've been born again. He gives... The command, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding Word of God. This is not the first time we've seen Peter speak with the language of being born again. We had read earlier with verse, verses 3 and 4 that according to His great mercy, God has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. What it means to be born again is to share in that victory that Christ has had. Uh, the language of born again, I think, is one that, that can seem strange to us. In fact, it seems strange to the first person whom Jesus used that, that reference to in the Bible. Uh, you, you might be in several camps with that. You might think, all right, born again... Uh, maybe born again is just something that I want to take literally. It's confusing. If I think about it, 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 it's a crazy concept. What does it mean to be born again? And so Nicodemus, as we'll see, uh, asks a question, what are you saying? Does this mean to re-enter into your mother's womb and to actually be born again? Maybe it's just confusion when you hear that word. Or maybe, on the other hand, it has negative connotations. Maybe a born-again Christian has a connotation of uh, these, these are fundamentalists. These are, are the crazy people who are out just doing, doing crazy things and you've heard it in political rhetoric. And born-again is, is a context that you don't really want to think about. Or maybe, and this would be the case for me and I think a lot of us here too, um, the term born-again is something we're so familiar with that it can lose its meaning. That familiarity has bred unfamiliarity and we... Uh, in turn, can talk about being born again without actually thinking about the depth of its meaning. And so my hope today is to lay out a little bit of, of what it means to be born again. Being born again is not merely a human act. It's not something we can do to ourselves. 
We know that the process of actual birth, of being born, is an amazing process. We have ample evidence of new births here at King of Grace and are wonderful reminders of how incredible the process of new life is. And yet this, this concept of being born again is a deep reality and is one that we can't create on our own. We can't just make it happen. But we need God for it. It has, as I said, the, the, this language of being born again has its roots in the words of Jesus. And so in, in John 3, we read of Jesus and Nicodemus, who was a Pharisee and, and a leader of the people of Israel in many ways. And, and they had this interaction, and, and Jesus says that if you want to enter into the kingdom of heaven, if you want to see the kingdom of heaven, you must be born again. Nicodemus rightly asked, what, what do you mean? And what Jesus is pointing to is a spiritual reality. Jesus is not just making this up on his own, though, but we also find that he has uh, ample precedent uh, for this concept within the Old Testament. In Ezekiel 36, I think we have a couple of verses to show up there. There, there. It furthers our understanding of what this means to be born again. Ezekiel 36, verses 25 through 27. And it reads, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. And from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. What Ezekiel references here has real physical ramifications, but is a spiritual reality. He writes that God's people can have a heart of flesh and not a heart of stone. And he furthers that image in the next chapter of Ezekiel. And we get this very stark image of a valley of dry bones. If you envision what this valley would be like, it's desolate, it's dry, with these bleached, white, dry bones, brittle, absent of life. And in this dialogue that ensues between Ezekiel and God, he says to Ezekiel that he should prophesy to these bones that they might live. And Ezekiel prophesies to these bones and flesh is put upon these bones so that life is given to dry bones. That is what new birth is. It is life given to dry bones so that we, when we find ourselves desolate, when we find ourselves in bondage to sin and to death, when we put our faith in Christ, we find that life is present. That we're no longer dry bones. We're people of, of flesh. We have life. Many of us um, in this church building have a story of what it means to be born again. Uh, people come from lots of different backgrounds. Some of us have been raised in the church. Some of us have, uh, have nothing to do with the church. Paul had mentioned last week a man named Adoniram Judson. In fact, he was not too far from here on a couple of occasions. Adoniram Judson was the first foreign missionary from the United States. He left, I think, from Salem, uh, was where, where the boat left for him to go to Burma. But Adoniram didn't have, uh, he didn't grow up as one who had a simple faith where he followed the things of God all the time. He had Christian parents. But yet, when he went away to college, he went to what's now Brown University, and he started wrestling with a lot of things. 
he essentially went there and, and uh, discovered a thing called deism. There was a friend of his named Jacob or Eames, or yeah, Jacob Eames. And this Jacob Eames had, had challenged Adoniram on a lot of these, these tenets of the Christian faith. And he said, yeah, questioned spiritual things, questioned the supernatural, questioned whether we could actually have a, a perception of God that he's real and he's active and he's living. And so Adoniram, over the course of his very, in some sense, successful time at college, he finished toward the top of his class, um, he, he became a deist. Didn't believe in the supernatural, didn't believe that considering the afterlife was really worthwhile. Didn't really want anything to do with Christianity. And so on his 20th birthday, Adoniram, with his family, revealed the news to his parents who were Christians. He said, I, I, I don't believe in this stuff. I don't buy it. It doesn't grab my heart. I, I don't think the supernatural is ultimately what's most important. And so he so said, what I'm going to do is I'm going to go, I'm going to go to New York City and I'm going to be involved in theater write for theater, be involved in theater. And so he went down to New York City, and his goal was to, to be involved in theater. And in fact, he did get involved with a theater troupe and, and was in some sense, as, as he spent more time with them, appalled at the way that they were living. They would go to the hotels, and they would leave without paying, and they would demolish things. And he, he thought something was wrong with, with this world. And so he had a real time of questioning how, how he should be living. All right, so this is where I was looking for my home, and I couldn't find it. So he, he wanted to go to his uncle's house, and he went to his uncle's house and was surprised to find a, a, a Christian there, uh, a, young, a young pastor who challenged him on some of his questions. Just really digging deeply. What, what am I actually believing? As time went on, he ended up at an inn where he'd never been before. And the innkeeper said, yeah, I, I've, got, I've got a little space for you, but it, you might not like it. It's next to a man who's critically ill. It might be noisy. We don't know how he's doing. He's not really doing too well. He could be on his last leg. Adnarum said, it's fine. I'm exhausted. I'll, I'll be next to him. He ended up having a completely restless night of sleep. He often heard the sounds of this man who was next door and thought to himself, this man is dying. Is he ready for death? He himself asked the question, am I? ready for death. He didn't sleep well. And when he woke up in the morning, he talked to the innkeeper and said, what, what happened to the man? He said, is he okay? And the innkeeper said, no, he died last night. Said, wow. What was the name of that man? It was Jacob. It was this friend of his, this deist friend of his with whom he had, he had learned all these things about deism. And it was his very friend who just happened to be in the room next door who had died that night and this moment served as a paradigm-shifting moment for Adoniram. He still struggled with the faith, but at that point God was relentlessly pursuing him so that he was eventually born again. And the fruit of Adoniram's being born again was an amazing life given in commitment through suffering to bring the Gospel to Burma. The foundation for Adoniram to love other people sacrificially was that he was born again. Now, for many of us, it might not be something that dramatic. Yet the process of being born again is a real one. And Peter assumes when he speaks of the command to love one another that we have gone through that process of being born again. That is our foundation for loving one another truly and unremittingly. It's those who are born again 
who have set their hope in Christ for an imperishable inheritance. Those people are called to love. We, as King of Grace Church, and as God's children, are called to love one another. At the heart of Peter's words, he writes simply, to love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Now, earnestly is a word we we use that can mean genuinely, it can mean sincerely, but it's a very potent word. We might say relentlessly. Fervently. It's the same word that is used to describe the way that Jesus prays in Luke 22 before He's crucified. He prays eagerly, earnestly, fervently. And so when Christ is anxious about His coming death, that's what is used to describe the way that He prays. And it's that sort of love which Peter calls us to. A fervent love for one another. There's nothing fickle about it. There's nothing passive about it. There's nothing that it says the feeling should be dictating our love for one another about it. He doesn't say, love one another since you should feel like it. Since you feel like it. You've been born again and you should feel like it and therefore love one another. He doesn't say, love the people who like the same music as you do. Or who enjoy the same sports. Or who is extroverted as you are. Or who is introverted as you are. Or who have the same background as you do. Or who have the same color skin as you do. Or who have the same economic background as you do. There are no conditions set upon this command to love one another fervently and relentlessly. And he sets it out there as a radical command to us. And part of the reason the new birth is significant amidst this command is that the new birth signifies that we are a part of a family. We're part of the family of God. Verse 22, again reads, Having purified your souls by obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. Or sisterly love. Or familial love. This is not just friend language. This is familial language. And he goes even further. He talks in verse 23, since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding Word of God. He sets up that contrast for us of imperishable and perishable. What is perishable seed? I think it's it's very clear in the context that that perishable seed is, is the seed of people. It's what results in wonderful little children being around. That's a strong connection and we know it. We feel that. We understand that we are to love our families. There's an amazing... And God has, God has orchestrated things to be that way. And yet, what He's saying is that we have been born again with a seed that is greater than the seed that gives rise to families. He says we have been born again by an imperishable seed. And it's that connection that ultimately is even stronger than the connection and more enduring than the connection to our families. That imperishable connection is a connection between fellow believers. I don't want us to miss how radical that is. This new birth that is given by the Spirit calls us into the family of God. And our commitment to one another is one that will extend even past this life into, into new creation. The connection to one another as fellow Christians is deep and impenetrable and enduring. 
And it's with that foundation that Peter says, love one another. I want to encourage the King of Grace Church that you do this amazingly. Since being here about two years ago, I've seen countless examples of what it looks like to love one another. I've seen so many people give sacrificially of their time. I can, most recently, people giving their time to do things like clean the, the church building, people helping others move, people bringing meals for one another when, when they're, they're in need of meals. You all do this amazingly well, and I'm so grateful for it. And I also want to say that this command to love one another is also present for those who feel like you can't do much for people. For those of you who are enduring hard times now and who don't feel equipped to do things like make meals or whatever, your example in going through sickness and suffering is a way of loving those of us who aren't going through the same thing. I've been encouraged time after time to see the faith of so many of you uh, and enduring suffering. And I really believe that's a way of, of, of loving one another by your example for that. And I appreciate it greatly. The implications of this new birth into the family of God are, are massive. As God's children, we're called to love one another as fellow heirs of Christ. What this means is that someone who may have rubbed you the wrong way, is no longer simply a person who has rubbed you the wrong way. But this person is a fellow child of God. I was able to spend a year after college at a place called the Trinity Forum Academy, and it was in Maryland, and some have referred to it as like Christian communism because we, we lived together and we did everything together. It was, it, was, it was in some sense a crazy year. We spent There were 11 of us, and we lived in the same house, we worked together. We ate together. We cooked for one another. We shopped for one another. We studied together. We traveled together. We did all these things. And it was a very intense time of community. And I found myself in many times during, during that experience not feeling like loving other people. I feel like I'm a pretty nice guy. You know, I can relate to a lot of people. And I was in some sense appalled at seeing my own reaction. Like My instinct would say, I don't want to. You're rubbing me the wrong way. Like, I, don't, I don't want to spend time with you. I didn't, I didn't want to do that all the time. I mean, people thought the same thing about me. That was part of what community was, was learning, wow, in, in this experience, I'm not, it's not a natural thing always to love one another. But I'm so grateful to God that by the end of that year, some of my best friends from that experience were the people who had the hardest time getting along with. As we finish in a minute and, and, and think of very practical implications for what it means to love one another and how our new birth can affect that love for one another. I don't want us to think that some three-step program that we can do can compel us to love each other. There is something amazingly supernatural about the love that God implants in His people at new birth. And I don't want us to miss that this isn't just something we can conjure up, but it's rather it's something that we are to throw ourselves on the mercy of God for. To say, God, give me this love. You've born me anew, and I, I know I don't feel like doing this, but I know you're calling me to do this, so give me that heart of flesh. So that I can not only follow your commands, but 
in, in following your commands, love your people. Even when it's not easy. Even when it's not natural. How does this work practically? What do I do when, when I really don't want to love someone else? When we're born again and we're adopted into the family of God, we have a great hope that is set before us. That hope is not abstract. It's not ethereal. It's not immaterial, but that hope is tangible and imperishable. And when we are born again, we have our eyes on that hope. We have the hope of having victory along with Christ over death and over sin. We have the hope ahead that there will be a time when there is no more sickness and sorrow and difficulty in loving one another. We're called to a living hope. So what do you do when you don't feel like loving someone else? You remember. You remember that this person, this fellow believer whom you, you don't feel like getting along with is a fellow child of God. You remember that Christ's love for that person was not contingent upon feelings, but that Christ loved that person enough to die for them. And yet we're tempted sometimes to say that we love depending on whether we feel like it at that moment. We remember that that person is adopted into the family of God. And that person, too, has an equal standing before God. What do you do when you feel the need to get angry with someone in the church? What do you do? You remember. You remember that any envy or any things that are the source of anger are, are, are not founded ultimately. You remember that there is no possession that we ultimately will lack, but rather that as we participate in the resurrection hope, ultimately in the promise of the inheritance that will be ours, we will lack no thing. So what do you do when you're envious of someone else? For things that they have, or for uh, giftings that they have, or, or whatever the case may be. You remember that God has given you all things in Christ, and that that person is your co-heir in the family of God, because they've been born again into His family, adopted into His family. Ben can come up as we finish. What do we do when we're overwhelmed by pride? What do we do when we, we think about uh, our tendency to want to compare ourselves to others? Want to put ourselves above others or find our value in comparing ourselves to others? We remember. Remember not only our sin and that it's by grace alone that we are born again, but remember that this person is a fellow brother and sister in Christ who is valued and loved by God, the Creator. And so in closing, I want us to think, yes, let, let, let's remember, let's understand that it's through the Word of God that we're born anew and enabled to love one another. It's through the Word of God that we are enabled to have a deep and abiding love that goes beyond the kind of love that we think about in culture. This deep love is enabled by the Holy Spirit and it's God-given. 
It's radical. The implications of this new birth are many. And as God's children, we're called to love one another relentlessly. This is not a purpose um, that is an end in itself. It's, It's not a purpose that exists for some arbitrary reason, but it exists in part because our adoption is to make us people who love one another and love God. So we give thanks today to God for having adopted us into His family. If you're born again, you're a child of God. Christians are your brothers and sisters. And you can approach God as your Father, understanding that He desires for you all good things. That He loves you relentlessly. This is not simply to be something that exists between Christians, though that's mostly what we're talking about today, but it's also something that is to be a call to people who are not in the church. Our love for one another is to be a public witness so that others might see that love and turn to Christ because of the way that we understand He has loved us. Since He has loved us so much, He calls us to be born again. And we're born again with the purpose of bringing about a relentless love for one another. Let's pray. Father, I give You thanks that we can come to You as Father. Lord, we come from many different places and understanding what a Father is like many of us have come from strained backgrounds. And others of us have come from backgrounds where that image of a father is is a good one. And so I pray, Lord God, that You would awaken our hearts today to the truth that You, as our Father, have adopted us into Your family when we're born again. I pray that that truth would pierce us to the heart And I pray, Lord, that in response to that truth that You have loved us relentlessly, that we would love each other with that same kind of love. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand. Thank you, Chris, for serving us with God's Word. Excellent job of bringing those truths out and calling us in faith to walk in love. Trust that you are encouraged and reminded of these things and would go by grace from this place asking the Lord, crying out to the Lord for his power and life to love one another, to love those in his church, to love those outside in his name as well. We're going to close with a song, Take My Life. It's uh, based on the traditional hymn, but with a different arrangement. If you're not familiar, you might just want to listen to the tune, the same words, just a different tune. And let this be a song uh, that we sing in response to these truths in First Peter. Lord, take my life. Lord, because of the life that you've given me, make me a lover of you, a lover of others. May I, by your grace, earnestly love others in your name. So let's... 
sing together. Take my life and let it be. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to Thee. Take my moments and my days, let them flow in ceaseless grace. Take my hands and let them move. At the impulse of thy love, take my feet and let them be swift and beautiful for thee. Verse 2. Take my voice and let me sing Always only for my King Take my lips and let them be Filled with messages from Thee Take my silver and my gold not a mite would I withhold. Take my intellect and use every power as you choose. Hear my, hear my, all of me. Take my life, it's all for thee. Hear mine.
to take our lives. Let them be consecrated, Lord, to you. Lord, take our moments, Lord, even this week, Lord, as we listen to this wonderful passage of Scripture and these wonderful truths, Lord, we recognize, Lord, there are going to be moments this week where we are going to need your power. We're going to need, Lord, the ability to remember, as Chris said. Help us to remember, Lord. When we face those temptations, when something or someone rubs us the wrong way, when, when things within us that are there that are not pleasing to you come out, Lord, would you help us to remember? Lord, we give you this week, we give you the moments, we give you the relationships, we give you all the contexts of our lives. And Lord, because of the wonderful gospel, because of the wonder of the new birth, Lord, we know we have hope and ability in you to love. And so we ask you, Lord, to help us to remember and to love earnestly one another and others in your name. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. And may the truths of the wonderful gospel of the Savior who lives in you by the power of the Holy Spirit, may these truths animates you to love earnestly this week. The Lord bless you. You're dismissed. Have a great week.